this is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead... In fighting Hamas, Israel is not only fighting for its own people, it is fighting for every country that stands against barbarism. Fears of regional contagion in the Middle East, as Israel vows to fight on, will cross to Jerusalem for the latest. We'll have fashion and luxury news from Paris and a flick through the papers, and then... When we were listening to rock and roll music coming from the West, rock and roll music really broke the monopoly of Marxism-Leninism in Eastern Europe. We'll delve into how music contributes to soft power. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has ordered its military, the munitions industry and the nuclear weapons sector to accelerate war preparations to counter what he called unprecedented confrontational moves by the US. A senior Russian diplomat says Finland will be the first country to suffer in the event of an escalation of tensions between Russia and NATO. And former European Commission President Jacques Delors, a founding father of the European Union's historic single currency project, died yesterday at the age of 98. Now, as the world clamours for a ceasefire in Gaza, the chief of the Israeli Defence Force says the war will last many months and there are concerns that there may be a wider multi-arena conflict. Journalist Hannah McCarthy has been covering the war from Jerusalem since it began and she joins me down the line now. Uh, Good morning to you, Hannah. Many thanks for coming on the show. I wondered if you could expand on the remarks made by the Israel Defence Force's Chief of Staff, Lieutenant General Herzi Halevi. So what we're hearing from Halevi is, I guess, you know, again, what we've been hearing a lot from the Israeli authorities since the beginning of the war in Gaza, that their long term strategy uh, is a long term occupation of Gaza. Um, We've heard rhetoric that is going to be very worrying to um, the US government, which has already publicly said, um, you know, for example, the US Secretary of State of State, Anthony Blinken, has said, you know, the US position is that, you know, there should be a pathway towards a two-state solution. Uh, there should be no long-term reoccupation of Gaza. and There should be no mass displacement of Gazans to Egypt. And there should be a reconnection of Gaza with the West Bank. Uh, what we're hearing is that the Israeli uh, government has been asking uh, the Biden government privately uh, to stop talking about a two-state solution. Uh, we're not hearing that language from the Israeli government. Uh, and what we're seeing, I guess, is a kind of, you know, a, a, something of a collision in terms of long term policy between the US, which is obviously very vocally backed Israel uh, in its war on Gaza uh, and the Israeli government, which seems to have uh, a long term strategy that is at odds with the US government. Mm. And what of funding? I mean, we understand that defence spending will increase by at least 8.3 billion US dollars next year. Can Israel afford a long war and can it count on support from the US? Sure. So you know, what we're hearing uh, from uh, economic analysts is that the war in Gaza is costing Israel uh, about $270 million a, a day. Uh, you know, there's mass displacement of Israelis, about 200,000. Uh, many people have been called up for reserves. Uh, so there's a significant economic toll on the Israeli economy and obviously a huge economic toll on the West Bank economy and just a disastrous Uh, toll on the economy in Gaza. Uh, But there are real questions about how long uh, Israel can continue to fund 
uh, you know, for example, housing for, uh, you know, over 200,000 displaced Israelis. Uh, and, you know, if it is not uh, got a, the solidified supporting of the US, particularly if it is at odds over the long term uh, plan for the Gaza, there are question marks of how it can sustain that kind of funding. Uh, and again, you know, maybe the economic realities of the war, uh, you know, we're also seeing, you know, increasing numbers of Israeli soldiers killed in the Gaza war, where whether that will change the public mood and appetite for the war in Gaza, uh, which so far does, you know, remain relatively strong within Israel. Mm. Uh, Israel's Defence Minister Yoav Gallant says the country's facing attacks on seven fronts. Can you tell us about this multi-arena war, to use his words? Sure. So, I mean, the, the war in Gaza is just, you know, I guess one front uh, in a kind of escalations around the region that we've seen, you know, particularly in you know, southern Lebanon, uh, where over 100 people have died. Uh, we've also seen, uh, you know, some some attacks in Iraq. Um, and again, what we're seeing also um, now is attacks by Houthi rebels in uh, Yemen who are attacking uh, commercial ships. Some people may have seen some of this kind of footage online uh, of uh, rebels kind of uh, kind of jumping on board uh, commercial vessels. Uh, what we've also seen there is that they've been launching drones uh, er- since early on in the war uh, towards southern Israel. Uh, so what's happening is that Israel is kind of, you know, its resources are being um, spread across multiple fronts. And, you know, privately, uh, many Israeli military commanders say that Israel does not have the capacity to fight wars on so many fronts. And again, that's not what it's saying publicly, but privately, there's real concerns. And, and I know there's definitely concerns about, you know, the front with South, southern Lebanon and how many resources that could take. The Hezbollah uh, militants there have access to resources uh, that definitely uh, worry Israel. Um, But again, what's at issue with the attacks by the Yemeni uh, Houthi rebels is that uh, there are real fears that, you know, if there is severe disruption to commercial supply routes, that's going to have a knock-on impact on the economy uh, in Europe, in the US, uh, and again, could just provoke further instability within the region. Mm. And we know, of course, that there are still a number of Israeli hostages being held in Gaza. Uh, One of them has a connection with China. What can you tell us about Netanyahu's appeal to Xi Jinping? Sure. So uh, Netanyahu has publicly said that he's asked China for help uh, securing the release of hostage Noah uh, Argamani, uh, whose mother is from China. Uh, her mother kind of has done a very um, emotive plea for help. Uh, she is dying of cancer. Uh, Noah's father also, you know, was very kind of you know, vocal in campaigning for her release since the beginning uh, of the war. Um, and I guess, you know, what we're seeing is, you know, it's been very common for the Israeli governments to reach out to any dual nationals, um, to the governments of the second kind of um, uh, country of any um, nationals who are held uh, in Gaza. You know, we've seen that, you know, with you know, the French, we've seen that, you know, with the Irish. Um, but again, the, the language that we're seeing from Netanyahu, I think it's also about, you know, trying to reach out to China, who has taken a very uh, cautious approach uh, on the Gaza war, uh, you know, it's kind of, you know, emphasized the double standard that, you know, the US and, you know, Western countries have taken in relation to Gaza and the Ukraine war. Um, it's, you know, not been standing behind Israel, like, for example, the US has. And mm. it's been quite consistent about, you know, wanting a two-state solution and a p- political settlement. So, you know, whether it's about the actual hostage negotiation or about, I guess, 
forging a link with China and trying to shore up some support. You know, I think that remains to be seen. And, and there have been more talks about negotiations for hostage release. We know that the US President Joe Biden has spoken with Qatar's ruling emir. What's the readout from that conversation? Sure. So we're getting some definite signs that another deal is underway. Uh, there's been kind of meetings between U.S. officials and Qatar. Qatar is obviously an important intermediary, intermediary for uh, both the Israeli government and the U.S. government, who you know don't ha- technically have direct contact with uh, Hamas. Uh, there was meetings in Warsaw this week. There was also meetings in Egypt. So in terms of Egypt, we saw Ismail Haniya, the political leader of Hamas. Uh, meeting with Egyptian officials, which is you know a, a positive sign. Uh, we also saw a meeting in Warsaw uh, between the CI director uh, Bill Burns and the Qatari Prime Minister uh, this week uh, about a potential deal. Uh, the idea is that you know forty hostages, you know the remaining women that are being held by Hamas, uh, men above the age of sixty, and other hostages who are sick or seriously wounded uh, would be released. Um, for, you know, there's discussions about a ceasefire for about one week. Uh, and there's also a suggestion that Israel might be open to releasing Palestinian prisoners who have, I guess, uh, a more serious track record, convictions for more serious uh, crimes than the prisoners that we saw released uh, in the more recent uh, deal. Hannah, thank you very much indeed. That was the journalist Hannah McCarthy speaking to us from Jerusalem. This is The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Well, it's time now to flick through today's papers. Agnès Poirier, a journalist and author of Notre Dame, The Soul of France, joins me now from Paris. Good morning to you, Agnès. Good morning. Uh, Jacques Delors is everywhere this morning. The European paper's going very big on his death at the age of 98. Tell us uh, about some of the coverage you're seeing there. Well, I mean, there's no escaping Jacques Delors, who died yesterday at the age of 98. Um, when you uh, look at, I was going to say Euro- the European press, but actually even the American press. Um, and uh, he has managed something that is quite rare uh, these days, at least in France, is to really to unite France and its political class because, uh, you know, praise has been pouring uh, from the right to the far left included uh, in France for the great builder, uh, the great architect of uh, European institutions and European unity. So who who was it? Um, he had been finance minister to François Mitterrand in the early 1980s before becoming uh, the president of the European Commission at a key moment. And he actually served three terms, which is something you know, nobody else achieved since. And so uh, we're talking about the, uh, the late 1980s and the 1990s. And what 
do we owe him? Well, we owe him the single market, border, borders-free single market, and also the euro, the common currency. Um, and there might have been something he later regretted, uh, regretted because after, uh, you know, being the president of the uh, European Commission, he came back to France and in 1995, he was so popular in France, it was it would have been very easy to uh, for him to run for the French presidency and be elected. But he decided not to. Um, and it's something that I think a lot of people, and him included, regretted. But let's go back to Europe. So, um, you know, he one of the things also that he created in 1987 is the Erasmus program, this exchange student program, which has benefited 14 million young Europeans. Um, so when you look at the European press, let's take the Belgian newspaper, the Libre Belgique, uh, which simply states on its front, uh, front page, we are all orphans. Um, without Delors and his work between 1985 and 1994, the EU would be a small bureaucratic institution. That's Le Soir, the, the other Belgium newspaper. Uh, the Washington Post talks, talks about the key architect of the EU. Uh, the Financial Times talks about one of the most important personality in post-war Europe. Um, I find the Italian Republica the most lyrical and, and quite touching because uh, it says that he wasn't only the creator of the euro and the single market. He was also the father of a European set of values freedom, liberalism, social justice and solidarity. And, you know, there, there are a lot of tributes of people who worked with him. And uh, they all talk about the fact that he was the face of European warmth, you know, um, that uh, for him what was important was for the EU to be powerful but also generous. Let us not forget that he was really a, a, a Christian Democrat at heart, a social Democrat, and he wanted also, along with the single market, to um, to have a European workers' rights charter, a European social charter, if you'd like. And that is also a regret of his because, guess what, Great Britain, vetoed it mm. um and so anyway so and he was of course a federalist he dreamt of a great political union which didn't happen um so anyway great european is is you know his memory is being celebrated today mm. now you spoke of his warmth warmth of a different kind has been incredibly <laughs> successful for netflix this week yeah, that's quite in incredible. I mean, d d the most viewed, I don't know whether we call, could call it series, but anyway, on Netflix at Christmas, but also this week uh, in many European countries has been a static shot of a chimney fire with the wonderful and relaxing sound of crackling wood. Um, so you might expect, of course, uh, for it to be extremely successful in cold countries, you know, in Northern Europe, in Denmark, Finland, Germany, Norway, but also in Spain and in France. You know, they are leading the pack of chimney fire stacked, static shot lovers. And there's also a version without the wood logs, in just fire, the dance of flames, and it's almost as successful uh, on Netflix. And you, I should know because the local, uh, my local cafe uh, in the fifth arrondissement of Paris has it on the giant screen. And um, and it draws people from the street. You know, uh, uh, you just want, there's something soothing, 
something festive, something warming uh, about it. And, it's uh, extraordinary, anyway, isn't it? The way yes. It appears to our, appeals to our sort of prehistoric nature, doesn't it, that fire is this one thing that all humans are drawn to. Completely, and without the inconvenience of having uh, to actually... Uh, <laughs> you know, carry uh, the the logs uh, to an actual uh, chimney in your home. So um, you've got everything. Absolutely. Well, perhaps Netflix should have a static shot of a bottle of wine and a glass being poured endlessly. Uh, well, because yes. <laughs> that's going down, consumption, apparently. Exactly. And and such, you know, shot would actually be warming and yet you wouldn't feel the uh, devastating effects, sad effects of alcohol. <laughs> yes, in France, um, you know, which is a ch- world champion of wine consumption, well, it's just, uh, it keeps declining. Um, I mean, just to think that in 60 years, between 1960 and, and 2020, uh, um, the consumption of wine has dropped by 60%. So today, only 11% of the French drink wine every day compared to more than 50% uh, back in 1980. So, and even uh, almost 20, I think it's 19.5% of the French people declare never drinking any kind of alcohol. And that's a growing trend. Um, so, yes, I think Netflix should, uh, uh, you know, start a new trend. <laughs> and do you think that that drop in consumption is is a, a kind of generational thing? Is it youngsters no longer drinking? Well, yes, it is. I mean, that's what the survey is actually showing. They do drink wine, uh, but only occasionally. I mean, the, you know, one a glass of red wine every day um, is just something that is passing. Mm, that's, a, yeah, a, a, an odd thing. But here in Britain, of course, I think we're seeing consumption go up. Well, yes, but, uh, um, you know, the uh, um, when you look at figures, uh, you start from a much lower uh, point. Mm. Uh, so it's not exactly uh, the same. Yeah. And yes, before you go, I'd love to hear a little bit about uh, Christmas in Paris. Tell me what the city's like uh, during the festive season. Well, what I love about Christmas uh, in Paris, uh, unlike uh, in London, for instance, is that... Um, you know, there's life in the streets. Nothing is actually closed or, you know, closed down and you're forced to uh, f- to, to spend Christmas with, fa- with your family. Uh, everything <laughs> is open. Uh, you can go uh, to uh, even on Christmas Day and there's no thing as Boxing Day in France. Um, so you can go to uh, the restaurant. You can go uh, to church if you'd like, but you don't have to. Uh, and uh, you can go to cafes and, you know, it's life as usual and uh, there's something uh, very warming about it because you're not forced into Christmas if you don't feel like it and I like this freedom. Mm, Absolutely and do you have the tradition of Boxing Day sales? Uh, we have sales, uh, but Boxing Day is very much, uh, you know, a British uh, thing uh, and uh, it will start in a few days, so be prepared. Excellent, Agnes, thank you very much indeed. Now, here's a roundup of the day's main headlines. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has ordered its military, the munitions industry and the nuclear weapons sector to accelerate war preparations to counter what he called unprecedented confrontational moves by the US, state media said today. Kim also said Pyongyang would expand strategic cooperation with anti-imperialist independent countries.
A senior Russian diplomat says Finland will be the first country to suffer in the event of an escalation of tensions between Russia and NATO due to its proximity to the former. Finland joined NATO this year after maintaining a neutral status for decades, a move which Russia says turned Helsinki into a hostile actor in its view. And former European Commission President Jacques Delors, a founding father of the European Union's historic single currency project, died on Wednesday at the age of 98. Delors, an ardent advocate of post-war European integration, served as president of the European Commission, the EU executive, for three terms, longer than any other holder of the office, from January 1985 until the end of 1994. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. And finally, the December-January issue of Monocle magazine is available on newsstands now. And within it, you'll find our annual soft power survey, featuring the countries that have mastered the delicate art of global influence. From China's panda diplomacy to British royalty, countries have employed a myriad of methods to extend their influence on the world stage. Among the more subtle tools of persuasion is music, a major force that has time and again shaped geopolitics and international diplomacy. Earlier, Monocle's Andrew Muller spoke to Ambassador André Shimouni, a diplomat and rock musician who formerly served as Hungary's ambassador to the US and NATO. Andrew began by asking Ambassador Shimouni what kind of resonance rock music had when he was growing up behind the Iron Curtain in communist Hungary in the 1960s. Well, you know, rock and roll music was a sudden window to the West. And I like to compare it to the Internet. It was the Internet of the day. So when we were listening to rock and roll music coming from the West, we were connected to our peers in New York, in in Los Angeles, in London. And that's really that was really the meaning of rock and roll music. So it was a time when Europe, the world was divided into the free world and the countries behind the Iron Curtain. And rock and roll music really opened a window and broke the monopoly of Marxism-Leninism in Eastern Europe. In 1960s Hungary, how much were you able to listen to and, and how were you able to listen to it? Oh, are you kidding? We, <laughs> every night we would turn on our radios, our little transistor radios, and listen to Radio Free Europe, Voice of America, BBC, which broadcast rock and roll music mixed with very strong political statements. But, you know, my favourite was Radio Luxembourg, most people don't even know what Radio Luxembourg mm. was. That was the radio station which did not broadcast any political messages, but the music was the message. And that's really how we got to it. But also, with the advent of the cassette recorders, reel-to-reel uh, -reel tape recorders, I mean, we had LPs smuggled into the countries, so it was unstoppable. There were some sanctioned concerts and tours in Eastern Europe by Western groups. And in your song, Waiting on a Train, you, you sing explicitly about seeing traffic at Kistadion in Budapest, I think, in July 1968. How significant a moment did that feel, perhaps, or at least how more significant a moment did it feel to Hungarian youth than it might have to the youth anywhere in the United States or Europe that traffic could have been playing? 
1968, there was a breath of fresh air. There was some hope that the countries of Eastern Europe could loosen their grips by the Russians. And therefore, in parallel with what they called the Prague Spring, there was some moderation of the system in Hungary as well. That's how traffic was allowed to come in. It was the first really important rock and roll band to show up in Eastern Europe. And it was very special. was a turning point in Hungarian rock and roll history. That is when many musicians realized, hey, wait a minute, there is something going on in the West and traffic told us what to do next. That's when the genie really got out of the bottle and it was totally, totally unstoppable. The period we're talking about, of course, is this period in which the depths of the Cold War coincide with what I think is looked back on as an extremely important era in rock and roll, if not an outright golden age. Do you think it's still possible for rock and roll, if that's what we're still calling it, to have that kind of cultural impact, to act as a kind of cultural ambassador in the way that it did 60 years ago? Obviously, I'm a great believer in the power of rock and roll music today. You know, it's interesting that if you look at the history of rock and roll, first it was, you know, pure rock. It was the Who, it was the Kinks, it was the Beatles, it was the Rolling Stones. And then came the progressives and progressive rock, which really had an incredible influence. And then came punk music, which was, you know, in your face for all the governments, but especially in Eastern Europe. Let me make a very, very clear political statement here. (laughs) Some rock and roll groups in Hungary have started saying lately, hey, Victor, Victor Orban, we're coming for you. So I do think that rock and roll does have an incredible role to play these days as well. And, you know... Just look at the impact of Western rock and roll in Iran, North Korea. So I do feel that uh, rock and roll still has an incredible role to play. And this is something that maybe rock musicians today, uh, just like in the 60s and 70s, are not perfectly aware of, but they should be. That was Ambassador Andre Shimuni speaking to Monocle's Andrew Muller. Do get the December-January issue of Monocle magazine now, which is available in all good newsstands, or order your copy at monocle.com. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Emma Searle, and our studio manager Mariella Bevan. After the headlines, there's more music on the way, and the briefing is live at midday in London. I'm Georgina Godwin, and I'll return on The Globalist at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 